0: amen amen that didn't sound like it was a new to you song y'all were singing it that was awesome maybe it's maybe it was new to you maybe that song's just that good we're excited about that about that one speaking of new um I just wanted to just tell you guys that we have a lot of you guys y'all someone already corrected me about that it's like you don't say you guys I know that I know better I'm sorry I apologize um we have a lot of new things happening around here. We um, have groups that started. It's not too late for you to sign up for a group. I just wanted to tell you that. We have every group that you're looking for, I promise. Um, get signed up for groups. We've got our Colorado mission trip that's happening uh, pretty soon here. It's not too late for you to sign up for that. And we have Amplify, our student ministry, that's going to be kicking back off pretty soon here. September 13th is our, our kickoff. And uh, we have... Trey Futrell, who is our interim student director, who's going to be leading that ministry. And he is an amazing young man. I'm so excited for you guys to get to know him, for y'all to get to know him. And speaking of that, uh, this Wednesday, what's the date this Wednesday? August 23rd, 6 p.m., anybody and everybody that wants to help serve or lead in our Amplify student ministry, you're invited. So come hang out with us Wednesday, 6 p.m., or next Sunday after church, if you wanna be involved. You could be a student leader, you can be an adult leader. If you wanna be involved in our student ministry, I just wanted to share that with you and have some time for you to put that on your calendar. And now, I wanna jump back into our new series that we started last week, titled Make Way. And we're going through the Gospel of Mark, and we went through Mark chapter one last week. We're gonna be in Mark chapter two. If you have your Bibles, if you've got your Bible app, you can just go and earmark Mark chapter two, verse one. And we are going to be there in just a bit. And this series is titled Make Way, and the subtitle is The King and the Cross. And if you remember last week, I talked about how the Gospel of Mark is strategically, every every Gospel writer strategically wrote their Gospel from their perspective, from their experience. And Mark, he wrote it, and for the first eight chapters, he's answering that question, who is this person, Jesus? Chapters one through eight. And then 8 is kind of where it's like the climax of that. And then it turns into chapters 8 through 16 of answering the question, what did he come to do? And so we're going to be answering those questions as we go through this series. And we're going to see that I I mentioned last week there's this idea of when you're confronted with a king, you're kind of forced to reorient your life around them. And this happens with us in Jesus. And the more revelation that I have personally had of who Jesus is, and what he came to do, the more that I have had to wrestle with that tension of reorienting my life around that reality. Some things about the way I live my life just naturally change when I'm confronted with this king. And there's gonna be some things that all of us are gonna encounter, and I hope that you feel that tension. I hope that you're forced to wrestle with some things that maybe it was an old way of thinking. And you're just like, how can I still have this old way of thinking when I'm confronted with this new king, this King Jesus? And as I learn more about who he is, how can I choose to still do some of these things and think these things when I'm confronted with this person, Jesus? And right at the beginning of Mark's gospel, we learned that his kind of prerogative, his initiative, his bend is to display Jesus as the long-awaited Messiah. And we looked at that word Messiah last week And how it actually gives us the translation of the word Christ, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. And in the Hebrew, that word means king. And this was the long-awaited, anointed king that Israel had been waiting for. And with this king comes a new way of life, a new authority. And with it comes new reign, new power, new realm, the kingdom of God. And He demonstrates this power and this authority by the way that he lives his life. And we see in Mark chapter one, the casting out of demons. We see the healing of Peter's mom who was sick. And then we get into Mark chapter two, and we see another miracle, one of the greatest miracles for many different for, for one reason, actually, we're going to get into. And it had me thinking about miracles in general. And I wanted to ask just a really real question. Do you believe in miracles? Yeah, you guys are bold, right? I want you just to think about that for a second. Do you believe in miracles? I was talking to a friend and they said, I mean, when Jesus was here, I believed in him, absolutely. It makes sense when God is walking to earth that miracles can happen. Do you believe in miracles? A miracle is a supernatural phenomenon that is not explainable by natural or scientific laws. And because of that, it's attributed to divine agency. The casting out of demons, the healing of Peter's mom, and as we approach Mark chapter two, we witness the healing of a paralytic. And we're going to witness many more miracles as we go. Have you ever prayed for a miracle? I've prayed for hundreds of miracles, I have. And maybe you're sitting in this room and maybe you feel like you're the minority and maybe everybody else shouts out, yes, I believe in miracles. And maybe you are struggling to actually believe in miracles. Maybe you're in this room this morning and you're just like, I don't, I, "I don't, honestly, I don't actually know if I believe in miracles, why? Maybe because you've prayed for a miracle. Maybe because you've prayed for many different miracles. And maybe you haven't seen any of those miracles come to pass, if you're honest. And because of that, you struggle to believe in miracles. Because you haven't witnessed one in your own life, and you feel like God hasn't come through with some of the prayers that you've prayed. And so it makes it, quite frankly, hard for you to believe in miracles. And I, I've been there myself, I have. I've prayed for many miracles over and over again, and I'm gonna be honest, rarely, rarely have I seen them come to pass. And what this did was this forced me like inward and downward into the depths of what a miracle is. And when I read through the gospels, I'm like, I wanna know what miracle Jesus performed and I wanna know why he did them. I wanna know everything about him. And I saw something very unique and peculiar about all of his miracles. They were never, ever performed for no reason. Every single one of them was absolutely intentional and you see two reasons mainly that each miracle was performed it was always to reveal either number 1 who he was or number 2 to meet the need of someone that he was performing that miracle for it was those two reasons over and over again when you read through the scriptures you're like really water to wine you're like yeah Yo, I need some I need some of that right there's more to that, and that's not even where I'm going this morning. I'm sorry. It's like, boop, rabbit gone. There would have been a lot of shame that was bestowed upon the family if they would have ran out of alcohol at the wedding. So Jesus actually didn't want that shame to be on them. He was meeting a need. He was meeting a need. Why, why does that matter? It's an honor and shame culture that they lived in. That's a side tangent. That's free for you, all right? So, so what did you get for showing up. There was only two reasons that he performed his miracles. In Mark chapter two, where we'll be this morning, this demonstrates the most powerful miracle of all time. It does, in my opinion, and I'm I'm gonna tell you why. The greatest miracle anyone could ever receive, even if they don't know it yet. And that's where our story picks up this morning in Mark chapter two, verse one. If you have your Bible, let's read there together. And if you don't have your Bible, you can look up at the screen. You can just listen to my voice as I read it aloud. Mark chapter two, verse one. It says, a few days later, When Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it, and then they lowered the mat the the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were there, and they were thinking to themselves, who does he think is? He is. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts, and he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man? Your sins are forgiven, or get up, take up your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, he took his mat, and he walked out in full view of them. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this before. This passage, this experience, is loaded with so much, and I don't want to miss it. And I'm gonna do something a little different. I typically don't preach this way. And if you're a note taker, this is probably one of those messages where it'd be good to just outline this. But I wanna start kind of at the top and I wanna work my way down. And there's a lot of different characters within this story that I think that we can learn from. And that's what God's word does. God's word is active, it's alive. We can learn from the original context and the original setting, but we can also learn how that speaks to us and teaches us today as well. It was written to a specific group of people, but it's written for everyone. And the first people that I want to address in this is the crowd, is the crowd. Right at the beginning, it says that there was no room, that these people couldn't get their friend to Jesus because it was not only a packed house, but there was people all outside the door. And as I was processing the crowd, it says they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd. I asked the question, why was there a crowd? Why was there a crowd? And I have come to the conclusion just from reading this passage and having an attentive eye that there's probably three different reasons why there was a crowd. There were people that were fascinated with this person, Jesus. They just wanted to get close to him to see if the rumors were true. There were people that were threatened by this person, Jesus and they wanted to keep tabs on him to see if he broke their law so that they could stone him, put him in prison, get rid of him. They were threatened by him. And then there were other people that simply just wanted something from him, right? Hey, I heard about this healing, miracle-working man. My mom's sick. My brother's sick. I just need to get them to the presence of Jesus. There's people that just wanted something from Jesus. Those are typically the three reasons why there was a crowd. And I was processing this a little bit further, and I can think about why this could be a problem, especially in our culture today, because remember, God's word speaks to us today as well. If we're not careful, we as a church in America can create this consumerism culture where we're creating an environment and an experience where people come to be entertained, right? And if we're not careful, we can walk in on a Sunday morning and the room's dark. I don't really have to engage anyone. I can come grab my seat. The only thing that I'm looking at is maybe the back of someone's head and some people playing music and then a preacher for about 25 minutes and then we're out of here. And if we're not careful, we can create an environment where we show up just to be entertained, and that's it. Where we're coming just to spectate, and that's it. If we're not careful, we can be a part of the crowd. And what's different from a crowd and the people that were closest to Jesus? The crowd was content to be entertained by Jesus. His disciples wanted to follow him. There was a book called Not a a Fan that was written a long time ago. I don't know if anybody ever read that book. But really, there's only two options. You can either be a follower or a fan, right? And we're called to be disciples of Jesus. We're called to be so close to our rabbi that the dust of his garments clouds us and covers us. We're not called to be a part of the crowd. If we're not careful, if we're not careful, and I'm talking big C church, right? We're, We're little C church, Big C Church. If we're not careful, the Big C Church can be content to operate like a movie theater where we come in, we get our popcorn, we have our soda, we get our Sour Patch Kids, and we're entertained for an hour, and then we leave. I was, even when, um, you guys remember when Top Gun was such a big deal? It came out like a year or two ago, I don't even remember. Why do people care about Top Gun? Does that movie create pilots Like, people go see that movie, and they're like, oh, my life has changed forever. I'm going to go be a pilot now, a fighter pilot. No, all you care about is Tom Cruise, if we're honest. And who plays volleyball in just Levi jeans and no shirt? If you don't know what I'm talking about, just forget what I said, please. But what I'm trying to say is we're content sometimes to come to church, and we don't experience real-life change. We're just entertained, and then we leave. We're like, oh, that was a good movie. That was a good service, worship was great today. How are we getting involved? How are we getting in the trenches? How are we following Jesus? The mark of growth in a Christian's life is really about who you're serving and who you have with you. That's it, that's it. It's who you're serving and who you have with you. And yes, we are called to follow Jesus for ourselves, but not by ourselves, amen? If you've been following Jesus for some years and you're still by yourself, there might be some problems. Get involved in a group. Get connected to a small group of men, a small group of women. Don't do life alone. We're called to follow Jesus for ourselves, but not by ourselves. Who are you serving and who are you bringing with you? And now, I, okay, I, wanna, I just wanna work my way down the passage. The friends. The friends, verse four. What did they do? They carried their friend who was a paralytic on a mat to Jesus. It said there was four of them and they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. What can we learn from the friends? When someone is suffering, when someone is hurting, when someone is going through a difficult time, that is not the time for us to just sit back on the sidelines as friends. That's not the time for us to just be spectators, right? Real friends aren't content just to sit back while other people are hurting. They're not. And good friends also know that the best thing for you is an encounter with Jesus. It's not for me to entertain some gossip It's not for me to stoke that fire and let you just rant on and on and on. That's good for for a, a, a moment, right? But good friends know that the best thing for you is an encounter with Jesus. And so these friends did whatever they had to to get their hurting friend into the presence of Jesus. And even more than that, they weren't content just to get him in close proximity to Jesus. They did whatever they had to, to get him literally in front of Jesus. And I just wanna give some context. Roofs were flat. Usually they would go on top of the roof when it was hot at night and they would sleep up there because it was cool or there was a breeze. So they took their friend to the roof, which would have been built by some clay, some straw, and they literally dug through the roof in order to get their friend into the presence of Jesus. And so I wanted to ask you, friends, are there, is there dirt underneath your fingernails? Or are you can, you just been putting hand sanitizer on trying to stay clean, right? You're like, I done told her, right? She keeps doing the same thing, running back to the same man. Like, that's her fault. <sighs> Sorry. I'm not trying to entertain you. I'm not. Or are you like, hey, Let's get to the bottom of this. Let's get to the root of this. I'm here for you, I'm not leaving. Let's dig in deep. I will sit with, I won't just sit with you in this mess, I will help uncover what's really going on. I'm gonna get some dirt under my fingernails. I, uh, since I have been in ministry, there has been um, some seasons where I've officiated a lot of funerals and they do not get easier. They don't, they're never easy. And I was really kind of shook last time I officiated one. It was just last year. And it was a a young son who had passed. And I remember as they were getting ready to carry his casket in for the service, his sister was just laying on the casket and she was sobbing. And I saw these six men brothers, friends, carry this casket into the service. And I've also been a pallbearer myself. And it's a very sacred role that can be asked of you. And and you know if you've ever done this. And it had me processing this reality about our human experience in this life. That metaphorically speaking, figuratively speaking, but for some of us, really, reality, practically speaking, when we get to the end of our life and when we're confronted with death and we walk through that doorway, there will be six people on this side of eternity that carry our casket to its final resting place on this side. And it had me thinking, who are your six? Who are your six? Who are the people that when you get to the end of your life, you know with confidence that those are the ones that are gonna be carrying your casket to its resting place on this side of eternity? And then I had one more admonishment for you, encouragement for you, challenge for you. Don't wait until you get to the end of your life to allow those six to carry you. Don't wait, don't wait. Because I'm confident if you live your life in such a way that you allow those six to carry you now, it's gonna be so much of a celebration when they carry you then. Who are your six? Do you have them? Are you letting them in? And if you don't have them, guess what? How can you be one? How can you be one? Because that's how you get them. You can control that. Who are your six? Now, here's something else that just blew my mind. In verse 5, it says that the faith of the friends played a part in the, the salvation of this man, in the healing of this man. So, another question is who are you believing for as a friend? Don't write your friends off. Who are you believing for? Okay, we're working our way down the passage now. We get to the religious leaders in verse 7. Why does this fellow talk like that? Who does he think he is? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? So when I was younger and I was in seminary, I struggled with a lot of things. I struggled with the Trinitarian aspect of God, Father, Son, Spirit. I was trying to make sense of all this. I wanted to make sense of it. I wanted to believe it. And when I read the scriptures, I'm like, the word Trinity never comes up anywhere in the scriptures. But you know what comes up? God the Father comes up a lot. Jesus comes up as God the Son, and I'm gonna show that right now. And then the Holy Spirit also comes up. In this passage right here, I was rocked because the religious leaders are freaking out. Why? Because who does Jesus think he is? He doesn't have the authority to forgive someone of their sins because that's the first thing that Jesus says to the man when he's lowered down in front of him. He says, son, your sins are forgiven. So the religious leaders start freaking out. Why? Because Jesus, who, first off, who can forgive someone of their sins? God. That's it. I want to break this down in the simplest terms for you. This is gonna be really weird and really awkward, but I don't care because I hope you never forget it. Um, Let's say I said something that was just extremely annoying someone in this room. Let's just say, Brennan, I was saying something that was extremely annoying to you and you couldn't take it. You just like backhanded me. Right? He would never do that. I told you, this is gonna be a weird illustration, but I hope you never forget it. And imagine, imagine his wife goes, oh my gosh, Brennan, I forgive you for what you did to Nate. you think that's going to be cool with me? Think about it for a second. Absolutely not. I'm the one that holds onto the authority to offer you forgiveness. Not her. Why? Because the grievance was committed to me. And so when Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, the religious leaders go, hold up. Who do you think you are? That sin wasn't committed toward you. That doesn't grieve your heart. That grieves God's heart. God is the only one that has the authority to forgive someone of their sin. Does that make sense? Gosh, I hope that makes sense. For me, I had to think about that for like 10 minutes before it finally made sense. And so what is Jesus saying here? Again, he's saying that I have the same exact authority as God the Father. This is where that trinity pops in. The religious leaders were blinded by their pride and self-righteousness, and they missed God because of their religion. They missed God because of their religion. How sad is that? How sad is that? God doesn't care about religion or rules. God doesn't give us good advice in order to earn our way to him. That's what religion does. When you think religion, it's do this and get that. That's what religion says. It says, do this and get that. And some religions say, if you do this, you might get that, but you won't won't know until you get there. It's true. The gospel says, "This this is what's been done. Simply receive it. This is what's been done. Simply receive it. Manipulation says, you have to get to me. True love says, I'll come to you. I'll come to you. God came to us and the Pharisees missed him because of their religion and because of their pride. Let's work our way down the passage. So then we come to the paralyzed man. To me, this was fascinating And this is, sometimes I'll do these really weird things where I'll think so deeply and I'll probably get myself into trouble, but it's okay, it's okay. I will have conjecture and I'll think about things and I'm like, okay, how did this happen? And as I think about the paralyzed man, I want you to to just track with me for, for a second. The paralyzed man lived his life in such a way that his circumstances did not dictate the kind of person he was. That's a weird claim for me to make, right? How do I know that? I don't know that for sure, but there's some evidence here that gives me some clues that leads me to think that. But for a lot of us, when we are in pain, when we're hurting, if we're not careful, we can allow our circumstances to dictate the kind of person that we are. The paralyzed man did not allow his pain to push people away. No. He didn't allow his pain to cause him to become a more bitter person. No. What did he allow his pain to do? He allowed his pain to draw him deeper and closer to the presence of God. And really, we only have two options. We can allow our pain and our circumstances to push people away and to create distance from one another and from God. Or we can allow our pain to cause us to become even closer, to become even more compassionate, more understanding, and in doing so, get us closer to God and his presence. And here's how I know this. Clearly the paralyzed man didn't allow his circumstances to dictate the kind of person he was and he wasn't a bitter, mean person. How do we know this? It's very simple, because he had four friends. He had friends. If you're a bitter person, if you are a miserable person, are you gonna have friends? No, you're not. You know that saying, misery loves company? It's a lie. Like for for just a short amount of time, they might. The paralyzed man had friends. That's how we know he didn't allow his pain to disconnect him from the people around him. He had to be open and willing. I mean, he could only do so much, right? But he had friends. He had friends. And then we get to Jesus. And then we get to Jesus. The first thing that Jesus said to this man when he was lowered down in his presence is, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know much, but I know one thing. I know one thing. If I had been paralyzed for any amount of time, any amount of time, what is the one thing that I'm gonna want more than any other To walk, to walk. That is the one thing that I'm gonna want more than any other thing. You look at my prayer journal, you look at my prayer life, you look at the miracles that I've been asking for, what's the one thing that I'm gonna ask for over and over and over again? It's to walk. Why doesn't Jesus give this man the desires of his heart? because there was something else this man needed that was bigger than any earthly desire that we could ever receive. You just may not know it yet. Church, I'm telling you, you just may not know it yet. God is more concerned about giving us what we need rather than what we want. And it's not that he doesn't care about what we want. Please don't hear me wrong but he cares deeply about what we need. Deeply. And if we're not careful, what we want can end up being the undoing of us if we first don't receive what we need. And what he needed was salvation. And what he needed was his sins to be forgiven. Jesus addressed the biggest problem that we all have, and it's our sin problem. Imagine if Jesus would have told this man, you're healed, get up, take your mat, and go and send him on his way. How long do you think this man would have lived his life for in gratitude and in appreciation for Jesus? Oh, the rest of his life. Are you kidding me? Until the day that he took his last breath. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, right. How many of you have ever gotten that thing that you prayed for, right? And then you received it. Ladies, your husband, and now you're like, Lord, help me. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that was trivial, okay, but I'm, I'm serious. How many of you have prayed for something that you've wanted so desperately and then you've received it, and then what? You go on for your next receive list that you go praying for. I'm telling you, if God would have healed this man and he would have got up and walked right out of there, he would have forgot Jesus 30 days later. I'm telling you, how do I know that? Because I'm the same way. I'm the same way. The heart of humanity doesn't change much, even given a couple thousand years. Because it's not about what Jesus can do for us it's about who Jesus is to us and I want to just unpack that for a second it's not about what Jesus can do for us it's about who Jesus is to us kids think about your parents parents think about your kids kids if you only loved your parents based off of what they could do for you what kind of loving relationship would you think that would be it wouldn't it wouldn't Parents, you know darn well that there's nothing that kid can really do, not do, that can make you love them any more or less, right? It's true. Parents, imagine if your kids loved you based off of what you did for them and not who you were to them. And how many times do we relate to God the same way? It's not about anything that God can do for us. It's about, it's all about who he is to us. And it's about who you are, beloved son, beloved daughter. There's nothing that you can or can't do that would make God love you any more or any less. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. I'll follow you, Jesus, only if you heal me. Only if you restore my marriage. Only if you bless my finances, my business, only if you destroy my enemies who continue to gossip about me, only if whatever comes after that if is actually your Savior. It's not Jesus. Being with God is greater than any gift we could ever receive from God. And the miracle of salvation is the greatest miracle of all. It's the greatest miracle of all. Even if Healing never came. I'll still follow you. I'll still believe in you. Even if my marriage isn't restored, God, I won't put that on you. I'll still believe in your goodness. Even if my business is going under, I won't walk away from who you are, God. Even if, even if, And it's so funny how our prayer life changes, right? If you just remember the things that you prayed for when you were a child, it's beautiful, it's innocent, (laughs) it's magical. And then the older you get, it's like, I'm content just to be alive. God, thank you for my life. And thank you for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the gift of salvation. And that is what Jesus came to do to show us that God has come to us, and in doing so, reveal who he is, a loving father, a righteous king, and the only one who truly has the power to save. Make way, salvation is here. I, I don't remember if I shared this here, and if I did, You could hear it again. There was a a point in time when I was 17 and my mom had her stroke. And I prayed every day for my mom's health and wellness to be restored. And there was a time where I, I saw her lift her paralyzed leg up when she was going through physical therapy. And I'm 16, 17 years old. I don't know anything about the medical system and all that. And her benefits ran out and she got put in a convalescent home. and she lost all that mobility and she was bedridden for the next 15 years and my brother was in malawi africa and i'm in seminary and i'm visiting my mom every week it's like year two of her paralysis And I'm praying for a miracle, and I'm believing for a miracle, and I'm so just discouraged. And I'm like, man, I read about these miracles. How come these miracles aren't coming true in my mom's life? And my mom was addicted to drugs, and she had high blood pressure, and that led to her stroke. And I remember showing up to the convalescent home, and I was like, I'm just gonna open up the gospels, and I'm gonna read them to my mom, because I'm at my wit's end. I don't know what else to do. And I get to Mark chapter two, and I'm embarrassed. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm getting ready to read my mom a story about a man who was paralyzed and received healing from Jesus. And I was embarrassed, like for God. I was like, I can't believe I'm about to read this story to my mom. And I just felt God's spirit just nudge me and so I just read it and I read it. And I got to the part where he got up and walked. And I said, mom, if healing never comes, I said, you know you still have everything to look forward to. She looked at me, she said, she said, I know. She said, I know because I have Jesus. And that moment marked me forever And even as my mom later in life lost consciousness and the Lord finally took her home, I know that she was saved. And there were seasons where I was so angry, but I know that the greatest miracle of all miracles, the miracle that every miracle points to, it's the miracle of salvation. It's the miracle of salvation. There's a reason why I don't share this story very often. Church. Let's be a part people marked by the truth that every miracle points to the miracle and that's the miracle that I pray many of you have already experienced and it's the miracle of salvation. It's the miracle of salvation. And I'm gonna do something out of obedience, right? I wanna ask everybody stay seated, please. Everybody stay seated and I'm gonna pray for all of us. I'm going to pray for all of us right now. We're going to get ready to sing one last song together. And if God has made a way in your heart and you truly have never received the gift of salvation, this is what I'm going to ask you to do. Please don't feel embarrassed. Don't feel timid. Everybody's seated. Everybody's eyes closed. I'm going to pray over you right now. And if you've never received the gift of salvation and you're saying, God, I want that. I've been praying for other things and this is this is what I need. I want to ask you to stand. And then At the end of my prayer, before I get there, I'm gonna have everybody stand, so you're not standing alone, okay? Let's pray. God, we come before you right now and we thank you for the power of your word. We thank you for the gift of salvation that you bring King Jesus to our hearts and to our lives. We thank you for this church. We thank you for these people, God. We thank you that this is a place that is so different a place that is real, a place that is authentic, a place where we don't have to hide. We don't. God, I pray right now, if there's anybody in this room that has been praying for so many things, but really what they need is they need the gift of your salvation, I pray that they would stand, God, with all heads bowed, with all eyes closed. I pray they would stand. I I pray that they would stand right now and that they would simply right now in this moment receive that salvation that you so freely give, but that you bought with a high price a high price. God, I pray if there's anybody in this room right now, is there a moment with you to commune with you, to tell you, God, I've been praying for a lot of things, but what I really needed, I I I need your salvation, God. I pray that they would stand right now. I pray they would stand. And I pray that they would be reminded that there is nothing or no one that can take that from them. No. Not sickness, not disease, not the enemy, nothing. We thank you for that gift. And now, God, I pray that your church would stand all together right now. Go ahead, church, stand all together and that we would stand up as your people and that we would proclaim your songs about your goodness, God, and your grace. And may we all be reminded of how we need you and how every single one of us has the greatest gift, the greatest miracle that we could ever receive. And that's the gift of salvation transformed heart, God. We thank you for that, in Jesus' name. Amen.